Good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. For those of you who I haven't met yet, um, welcome to Sojourn. Uh, if you weren't here at the beginning, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Um, and I just want to kind of reiterate something that Sarah said. We want to invite you to jump into life with us at Sojourn. Um, I want you to know that no matter where you have been, what your life has looked like, what your past week has looked like, uh, nothing stands in the way uh, in our, from our perspective of you jumping in with us. Uh, we want to get to know you. We want to hear your story. Um, we want to walk through whatever it is that you're going through. Uh, and we do that together. We're, we're an imperfect church. We're figuring it out. We're learning um, how to live a life before God together. Uh, and there's many things that we haven't got figured out yet, uh, but we hope that you feel welcome here. Uh, please fill out a Connect card. Um, we'll follow up with you sometimes in a couple of weeks, hopefully this week. Um, if you were one of the people who filled out a Connect card and you haven't gotten an email yet, please email me with your angry email. My email is taylor at sojourngalleria.org. Um, I'm kidding, I'm Paul, so it would be, I'll let you think about what my email address might be. But um, let me, uh, uh, so, so this morning, it's an honor to be preaching uh, this morning, honor to be preaching God's word. We're in the, the book of 2 Samuel, like Sarah read, uh, and, and this is the second to last sermon through the books of First and 2 Samuel. And we've been here for a long time in these two books. We started before Christmas, and we've been walking through, uh, skipping a bunch of chunks of text, which is kind of painful uh, in a sense, but good in, in terms of giving an overall theme of what the books of Samuel are talking about. Uh, in general. And so today, we're skipping over a swath of text. Last week, we heard a sermon from uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Today, we're jumping up to 2 Samuel 19. Um, I don't think we're going to get to chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. We might, I might pull that out due to time, but, um, but we'll do at least the end of chapter 19. Uh, and what I want to do as we begin is jump, really jump right in. I want to give, spend about two minutes giving a little bit of helpful context, because this passage, as you heard it read, might have come a little bit, it's kind of out of context, and so it would be helpful to, to, to know what's going on. Uh, so let me catch us up real briefly. Last week, like I said, Justin preached a sermon for us on the story of David and Bathsheba, David's sin against Bathsheba, uh, and in, in raping Bathsheba, in having her husband killed so that he could take her as his wife. Uh, and one thing from that passage is that as a result of David's sin, God says to him through the prophet Nathan, uh, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. You might remember that, uh, chapter 12, verse 10. It's an ominous prophecy. As a result of David's sin, the sword shall never depart from your, your house. And what we see after this verse, after this passage, is that as we look through the chapters following, David's family really starts to fall apart in some marked, uh, uh, in very big ways. Uh, one of David's son, Am, sons, Amnon, rapes his sister uh, immediately, almost immediately thereafter. And then he is, a couple of years later, killed by his one of David's other sons, Absalom, his brother, for doing that. Absalom is eventually welcomed back into, into Jerusalem after committing the crime of killing his brother. Um, uh, and he begins to win over the people to himself, and he eventually conspires to overthrow his father David, to kill David and steal the throne from him. And so he gives, there's this story uh, where he, he comes to David and says, David, can I, you know, father, can I go to this other town? I need to fulfill a vow of worship to the Lord. But really, he's going to this other town to muster up troops for this rebellion. And as he's marching, marching back to Jerusalem, David hears, he flees from Jerusalem with thousands of his loyal men. Um, and Absalom gets to the town, sees that David isn't there, uh, and then marches out into the wilderness across the Jordan. They meet each other in battle. It's a bloody battle. Uh, David comes out victorious. Uh, the, the, the rebellion is quenched, quelched, squelched, whatever the word is. Um, the rebellion is ended, defeated. And, uh, uh, but Absalom is killed. And so the story ends with David in tears 
after the death of his son. And really, repeatedly over the chapters in between the David and Bathsheba story and where we are today, we see David just kind of torn up, emotionally struggling with what all has taken place because as a result of his sin, really, um, one of his sons has raped one of his daughters, was then killed by another one of his sons, who then, in turn, plotted a rebellion against him and was killed. And all of this is a result of what he had done. And so, um, needless to say, it's kind of a hard time for David. And that brings us up very joyfully to the passage in which we find ourselves. Uh, 2 Samuel 19, uh, and we'll jump right in. This is after Absalom's rebellion. It ends, David wraps up things. He's kind of forgiving people, uh, reconciling with people. And now with the rebellion over, it's time for David, who had left Jerusalem, to return to his city. But in the manner of his return, as we see very quickly, something isn't right. Verse 39 says, Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and then he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him. So Barzillai and Kimham, read chapter 19. That'll tell you who those guys are. Um, And then here's the rub, though. Second half of verse 40. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought their king on his way. You might not have caught it. On the journey of his return back across the Jordan to Jerusalem, uh, David is escorted by all the men of Israel, or excuse me, all the men of Judah, but only half of the men of Israel. And this creates a big problem. Right, David needs to go back to the city. He's the king. Um, and he, wait, he waits to gather people to, to escort him, but he doesn't wait till Israel gets there. He just waits till all of Judah comes to accompany him, and then he leaves without the second half of the Israelites, uh, without giving them time to arrive. Uh, and this is an offense to Israel. And so Israel speaks very sharply in verse 41. The men of Israel say, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men with him? Um, and so Israel is addressing David in this. And I don't know if you, maybe you can picture a scene uh, where parents with maybe a young child, uh, mom walks into the kitchen right before lunch and finds their son eating a slice of cake and also sees her husband sitting over there trying to avoid making eye contact. And she addresses her son. Well, who gave you that piece of cake? Who's she talking to? Is she talking to the son? No, <laughs> she's really talking to her husband. Um, and this is what's happening here. Judah, or excuse me, Israel is addressing King David but really they're talking to these brats over in Judah. Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away from us? Um, and uh, Israel uh, is, has got a big problem. They've stolen you away. They brought the king and his household over the Jordan. And this begins a heated exchange between Israel and Judah. And what's at stake here is honor. It was an honor to escort the king. And since David went with all of Judah, but only half of Israel, Israel felt slighted. They felt dishonored. And how they chose to communicate this is no small thing. They accuse Judah of kidnapping the king. Right? These men have stolen you away. This is a serious accusation because it involves breaking God's law, laying your hands on the Lord's anointed. And so they accuse, you've kidnapped the king. Have you ever been hurt? Uh, if you think about it, have you ever been hurt and then lashed out with words, maybe exaggerating a fact or two to make your point? I was uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was at a, a Sojourn Houston 
elder meeting uh, that all of the, the elders of the Sojourn churches in Houston meet once, uh, sometimes twice a month to discuss various things. Um, and I'm not ordained as an elder yet. I'm a church planting resident preparing to be a, the, a church planting pastor, but we, the church planting residents are invited to, to listen, learn, participate. Um, and so we was there and, and a couple of weeks ago, recently, one of the conversations between the elders got pretty heated. It was a pretty serious conversation about some serious things. And it became a very intense conversation very quickly. And one elder in particular was visibly agitated. Like he was red in the face, but he wasn't saying anything. Eventually someone asked him, you know, would you like to say anything? Um, and his, his response was, it's better that I say nothing right now. And it's, that's just what he did. He didn't say anything. The, the meeting ended. Everyone left, went to work. It was a morning meeting, very early morning meeting. And, um, and he left. And, and I learned a lot from that because he, said he was able to send an email later in the day clarifying he said, this is what I was frustrated about. This is who I talked with afterwards. Um, and I learned a lot from that. He exercised great wisdom. He was angry and he didn't speak. How often <laughs> do we speak rashly out of anger only to come back and have to apologize later? Um, so I learned that in here. Um, we should be slow to speak, especially when we're angry. But as we see, the men of Israel did not display this kind of wisdom. They lashed out with a serious offense. You've kidnapped the king. And Judah responds, verse 42, all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. You know, why have you kidnapped the king, said Israel? And they said, well, he's our close relative. We can do with him whatever we want. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten it all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? Judah responds here with a very, a very quick defense. They say the king's our close relative. David, what they mean there is David was from the tribe of Judah, which you might be familiar with. And so what they're saying is we have a right to the king to do whatever we want because he is our closest relative. And then they essentially say, but we haven't abused our position. We haven't asked them to buy us food. We haven't taken advantage of our privileged position. Um, and if you notice how they say it, they say, why then are you angry over this matter? Why are you mad? We've done nothing wrong. You might be familiar with the term de-escalation. Uh, in conflict resolution, it's a term that refers to things that you can do and say to, to, to kind of lower the temperature of a conversation so that you can really deal with conflict um, in a way that's productive. Let me tell you how to not de-escalate a conversation is when someone accuses you of wronging them saying, I haven't done anything wrong. Why are you mad? You know, um, I've been on both sides, <laughs> you know, both sides of moments like that. I both said that to people. Um, my wife can attest to that. And I both had that said to me and I realized, you know, de-escalation is not the result, uh, escalation. And so we see it escalate. Israel quickly retorts to Judah, verse 43. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, well, we have 10 shares in the king and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? They do a couple of things here. Um, first, they point out their numerical superiority to Judah. Of course, Judah had said, we're the closest related. And so Israel responds, well, we have 10 tribes. You're just one tribe. And if you're familiar, there's 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so they represent 10, Judah represents one. For you mathematicians, that doesn't equal 12. Who's the 12th tribe? Anyone? Levi, tribe of Levi, um, was the priests and they were scattered among the rest of the peoples. They didn't get an allotment of land. So that's why there's only 11 tribes mentioned here. You get that for free. But uh, Judah says, we sorry, Israel says, we have more than you, uh, which is, you know, and we have more tribes than you. And then we also have more than you. So we have more people than you. They basically say, we, we're, we're greater than you in number. Therefore, we have a greater share in the king. So we should be the ones to do this. 
Also, they bring up that they were the first ones to bring up bringing back the king. Earlier in chapter 19, we read that after the rebellion, the, the Israelites are kind of bickering, deciding what to do. And then eventually they say, we should, you know, what should prevent us from bringing him back to Jerusalem? So they, they had the idea of bringing the king back to Jerusalem. Their logic in bringing that up is simple. It was our idea, therefore we should have gotten to do it. I don't know if you might be able to empathize with the Israelites if you've had a good idea and then had someone, uh, probably someone close to you, if you have a sibling or you know, close friend uh, or some, maybe someone in your class growing up, whatever, anyway. Um, you can probably empathize with what it's like to have your ideas stolen uh, and then get someone else, watch someone else get the credit for it. They're saying we should have had the honor of bringing back to Jerusalem because we had the idea first. But then there's another important thing nestled right in the middle of this verse, verse 43. They say, why then did you despise us? Um, This kind of gets lost in the English, but this is again, a serious accusation. The word they use for despise is the word for cursing. Why did you curse us? And this is also an infraction against God's law. Remember the Lord said, people who bless you, I will bless. And people who curse you, I will curse. And so Israel is saying, you cursed God's people. Israel's swinging with everything they've got at Judah. And here at the end of verse 43, the narrator ends this exchange with the statement, but the, men, the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So Judah here evidently won uh, the argument, but the wording, I think, tells us something uh, about the author's perspective on this exchange. You see this whole back and forth, the first to speak is Israel, right? They accuse Judah, uh, they exaggerate some things. And so in a sense, they started it, they started this kind of petty dispute. Uh, but in the wording, I think we see that the author is likewise indicting the men of Judah. Right? He says, their words were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And ferocity, right? ferociousness, as the, he- you know, the Hebrew word for that word also means stubborn, defiant, harsh, cruel. Right? Ferocity is not a virtue, nor uh, is it something by which the love between brothers should be characterized. In this battle of words, both sides overstepped the bounds of what was expected of God's people. And let me stop there for right now. That's the passage um, That's the passage for this morning. We have what looks like on the surface, a, a petty disagreement that escalated way too quickly. Right? These were brothers, um, and not just any brothers, these were fellow tribes of Israel. This is God's chosen people uh, bickering in a petty disagreement that um, you know, basically made them look like they're interacting like, like a bunch of undisciplined children. With that said, it's not that what they were arguing about here wasn't important, right? These were issues, like I said, of honor and dishonor. And honor is important. We know this even today. As Christians, we're told in Romans 12 that we should outdo one another in showing honor, right? And we don't have to be Christians to know this. If you look at the culture around us, um, the word discrimination uh, and, and disadvantage, those are words that we hear a lot. And when someone says, I am being discriminated against, what that really is at its root is a question of honor, is it not? I'm a human being, I'm a fellow human being. You are not showing me the honor that I deserve as a fellow human being. Therefore, I have been, I'm being discriminated against. Honor is very important, even in today's world. Especially important uh, back then as well. This is very much an honor and shame culture. A couple of chapters before this, uh, just to give an example, one of Absalom's advisors named Ahithophel uh, committed suicide simply because his advice wasn't listened to. Right? He was so ashamed that he wasn't listened to that he went and killed himself. This is an honor-shame culture. Honor is incredibly important. The honor of escorting the king back into Jerusalem, especially after a battle that he had just won, right? The civil war had ended. People are hoping to come together. It's not looking like it, but they're hoping to. It was a big honor to be in the party, escorting the king back to 
to the city, uh, to his city, Jerusalem, and being deprived of this privilege for Israel was, was, a, was a huge, was a grave dishonor. Also for Judah's case, they were accused of breaking God's law twice, probably falsely. Um, and so this is no light thing, uh, being accused of breaking God's law. They were also wrestling with issues of honor and feeling dishonored. So both parties were dealing with real problems, real issues of treatment, mistreatment. But the reason this escalated so quickly, really, um, isn't found in the specific issues of this passage. Um, While they were definitely exacerbating, the real issue this escalated so quickly was because this wasn't an isolated event. The tension between Israel and Judah, the northern and southern tribes, um, is really the consequence of sin doing what sin does, multiplying, dividing, destroying human relationships, even relationships between brothers. Uh, like the relationships of those in Israel. And uh, if you think about it, in a sense, this is a direct result of David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, right? Nathan had said, the sword shall not depart from your house and look how far things have gone. By this point, the violent division is not just in David and his family, right? We saw that in, in, in uh, Amnon and Absalom, the rape of their sister, killing each other, raising up in revolt. We see this in his family, but we also see it throughout the whole nation. How does verse 41 begin? It doesn't say a couple of instigators rose up and led the people to argue. It said, all the men of Israel addressed the king. Verse 42, all the men of Judah answered. So this temperature, this division and discord, a product of sin just multiplying, doing what it does, had reached, permeated through through all of society. Sin and the disunity that sin creates are like cancer. They spread like wildfire on a windy day. We see... um, Another example of this, this isn't in our passage, but even David's particular sin multiplies. He had abused one woman, Bathsheba, and that led to the abuse of more women. There's this interesting story that's included in, at the end of chapter 16 and at the beginning of chapter 20, verse three, that refers to these concubines that David, when he fled the city, he left 10 of his concubines to keep his house in order while he was gone. When Absalom came into town to take over, um, he defiled, he, he raped these 10 concubines. When David comes back, we see that he doesn't take the concubines back because they've been defiled. But we see, I mean, we see him providing for them. He provides for them. He feeds them. He protects them. But they have to live as widows for the rest of their lives. It's an interesting detail to be included uh, twice, chapter 16, chapter 20. But I think it's included to show even David's particular sin, uh, abuse against women, multiplies. And we see the effects of it continuing even in generations to come. Sin multiplies. It wreaks havoc on human relationships. But what I wanna do now Uh, is let the text narrow us down to a couple of things that I want to dig into for the rest of our time together this morning. And I didn't actually start a a clock for the first time. And so uh, I apologize in advance. Um, I'll keep an eye on it. A couple of things I wanna dig into for the rest of our time. Uh, You see, this is kind of an obscure text. In general, uh, it's a relatively easy text to see where it fits in the history of Israel uh, there's, it's a step towards the division of the northern and southern kingdoms, which eventually happens officially about 50 years after this. Um, and ultimately that sets the stage for the reconciling ministry of the Messiah who was to come, Jesus Christ. So it's pretty easy to fit it in kind of historically, but um, you might read this passage like I did a number of times really this week and wonder what's the point for us today? You know, what is there to preach on? Um, and as I was chewing on it, I became convinced that this text really hits on something that, that might be one of the most important things uh, that, that we need to hear uh, as a church at Sojourn Galleria, uh, as the church in the United States. Um, you see, today, no more, but certainly no less than ever before, uh, the unity of the church is under threat. Uh, Satan doesn't want us united. 
Uh, he and his host of demons uh, want to divide, devour, and destroy us. Our own sin multiplies and seeks to divide us one from another, pushing us away from other people. Uh, we're living in an incredibly, or excuse me, the world we, we live in would love nothing more than to watch the church crumble. There's people looking right and left for ways to discredit the ministry of the church and what's going on in Christianity today. We're living in an incredibly polarized adversarial cultural moment in which there are factions all over the place seeking to devour and destroy one another. And unfortunately, this is absolutely also the case within the church. With that said, I don't think it's an accident that God has us in a text about divisions and petty disagreements within God's people. Because here's the thing, while times and issues may have changed, the human heart has not changed, right? The mistakes that we see Israel and Judah making in this exchange are the very same mistakes that we make today. Let me put it this way, uh, one way for starters. Think about the foolishness of this situation. This is God's chosen people. Uh, Israel, the nation through whom God was going to bless all the nations of the earth. And this nation, this nation of promise was here bickering with one another, mired by infighting and rivalry. Right? The nations are raging around them. We read this throughout the Old Testament. The nations are raging around them, waiting for an opportunity to pounce and, and conquer God's chosen people. And here they are, um, after having fought one civil war, about to get in another civil war about who got to carry the king back into town. Right? It's like, man, don't you have, I understand the real issues. It's honor, dishonor. They're not non-issues, but don't you have some bigger fish to fry? The way that we argue, excuse me, the way that they argue follows patterns that are probably quite familiar to you and me. Uh, when Israel sees that they've been wronged, what do they do? Rather than approaching Judah as brothers seeking reconciliation, they approach Judah adversarially with words marked by accusation, exaggeration, aimed not at reconciliation, but at really inciting violence. We see this play out in the beginning verses of chapter 20. When Judah receives this onslaught from Israel, when they're accused by Israel, what do they do? In essence, rather than listening and engaging thoughtfully with what Israel had actually said, um, they jumped right to their own defense, focused almost entirely on themselves and their lack of wrongdoing, functionally ignoring any possibility that their actions had affected the men of Israel. Finally, evidently relying on fierce words in order to conquer their accusers. And there are myriad examples, of course. Um, you might already be thinking of some in your own life. There are myriad examples of what this kind of dialogue looks like today. How often when you're wronged, are you tempted to take cheap shots aim at, aimed at injuring your brothers or sisters, uh, making them pay for whatever they've done, um, bolstering our own position rather than approaching them with grace-filled integrity to pursue not our own interests, but their growth. How often when you're accused, do you jump immediately to self-defense or self-justification instead of jumping to humble apology? And if you're caught by surprise, asking clarifying questions to see what you might've done to make the person feel the way that they do. So often we tend towards behaviors that push away other people, right? that set up these adversarial polarized relationships rather than behaviors that draw us towards other people and towards pursuing reconciliation. In my own life, I know there have been many times, even in this past month, that I've been guilty of both of these things. I wrote down a bunch of examples, but you know, to give just one example, I'm a self-justifier. Um, there, I always have a really good reason for having done whatever I've done. Right? And, and I say that as soon as I'm approached. My wife can tell you this, I don't like to apologize. I actually wind up apologizing to my wife very frequently, but usually that doesn't come right away. Right? That comes when she approaches me with something that I've done that she didn't like or, or that made her feel devalued or whatever. She'll approach me and I'll 
immediately jump to my, my own defense. I haven't done anything wrong. Why are you mad? You shouldn't be mad. That's silly, you know. Um, and then I realized that that escalates rather than de-escalates. And after about 15 minutes of me ruining a moment in our marriage, I'll come back and apologize for both the initial thing and the, the thing. So I'm slowly learning, but I do this. Even this past week, Thursday morning, um, I hate it. And I like to think that God has brought me along much further today, like I'm further along today by his grace than I was this time last year, but he's working on me. Um, we are tempted to jump at each other and jump at these things. Often though, to look at a slightly different angle to this thing, uh, these kinds of unhelpful dialogue happen at the communal level, as was the case with Israel and Judah in the text. Right? Not necessarily individual, but communal. Uh, Israel and Judah weren't just individuals interacting with one another. They were individuals representing communities that were in interaction with one another. And this one is huge for today. Trigger warning, I'm gonna get political. Uh, for one example, there's been a lot of conversation lately about the concepts of, of white privileges, or excuse me, white privilege. A lot of conversation about that. Obviously, some circles have more conversations than others, uh, but I would guess that most of us in this room are familiar with the conversation, even if we've shied away from it. And what's unfortunate in the conversation about white privilege is that um, quickly, it usually takes on an adversarial tone. Right? On the one hand, when white privilege is brought up as a possible explanation for certain phenomena, there's usually a slew of people accused of having victim mindsets being ignorant to what the facts say or being guilty of reverse discrimination. On the other hand, when, for example, predominantly white people or governments make observations about struggles faced by non-white communities that would seek to maybe divert attention away from white privilege so much, there are usually a plethora of references to prejudice, ignorant bigots, racists, other pejorative terms. It's easier often to attack and discredit a person and associate them with a group of, of heinous individuals that doesn't really exist, but associate people. It's, it's easier to discredit people than to actually interact with uncomfortable conversations. Um, and often, people tend to take that easier way out. Another example of this is the pro-life versus pro-choice debate. Right? People who argue that a woman should have a right to get an abortion often revert to accusing the people who are against abortion as being anti-women, that they're ignorant, don't care about the struggles of the women facing this decision, and they do those things rather than addressing the actual arguments that pro-lifers make about the sanctity of life. Likewise, people who argue against abortion often quickly paint people who argue for abortion with various evil paintbrushes, like murderers, fools, baby killers, without taking the time to intentionally engage with people on the other side and the systemic issues that they bring up. Again, it's often easier to paint your opponent as a villain than it is to actually interact thoughtfully and lovingly truthfully, but lovingly with their ideas. One more, gun control. In the conversation about gun control legislation, either you, you're someone who doesn't care about school shootings or gun violence, or you're someone who doesn't care about the history of our country or the, or the constitution or the right to defend yourself. But there's nothing in between. We could go on, questions about homosexuality, gay marriage, tax rates and healthcare, immigration, what to do with illegal immigration. These are very intense conversations these days and often they are marked by vitriol and anger and bitterness, and accusation. And just like you, um, I have convictions and opinions that inform my stance on all of those things that I just mentioned. I'm happy to talk with any of you about how I came to my conclusion and what, what I think about those things, but that's not my point in bringing these things up right now. Uh, 
My point in bringing those things up is to illustrate that we are in a cultural moment in which conversations surrounding complex issues like those ones are the ones that we need to be having together as Christians and that we need to be having together with our friends outside of the church. These are incredibly important conversations for us to have, but they're often difficult to have. My wife and I were spending time with a woman at one of the other Sojourn churches a couple of weeks ago. And she said this, she said, These, I, I often find it easier to have conversations about the things that I'm really thinking about, like these issues, with my non-Christian coworkers than I do my neighborhood parish, right? What was the reason? Because when I bring it up in the neighborhood parish, I'm quickly pointed to some quick moral imperative and then brushed aside and say, we should move on to other, other important things. And, it's, and, and that, that resonated with me. I know that I have, and probably you have, contributed to this kind of environment, um, both knowingly and unknowingly, uh, to make conversations like this very difficult to have. And listen, with each of those examples that I gave, there are real moral and ethical implications of choosing one way or another. They're not ins- insignificant issues. And there have been wrongs committed by both sides and to both sides that need to get addressed in even having how we converse about it. There's been accusation, there's been offense, there's been real hurt. These are real issues and real problems have arisen in the context of these conversations. But so often as we engage with these wrongs, we're tempted to make assumptions, exaggerate facts, attack other people rather than engaging one another lovingly, thoughtfully, graciously. So often we're contented with simply remaining entrenched in our comfortable ideological camps, um, isolating ourselves from the complexity of these conversations so that we don't have to deal with that complexity. Because when we think about it, how much easier is it to fight with one another like these Israelites and Judahites than it is to actually go through the process of true, humble reconciliation? How much easier is it? You see, true, humble reconciliation is difficult because in reconciliation, you quickly realize that you're not so much dealing with the facts themselves as you're dealing with the people and their perspectives on those facts. Facts are incredibly important. Don't get me wrong. The beginning of any process of reconciliation begins with establishing facts but usually that's the shortest part of the process of reconciliation reconciliation between two warring parties. You get the facts addressed and then you spend the rest of the time interacting with how different people look at those facts differently. And it's hard. See, Judah and Israel, right, this is what they really needed. They needed, they, they were not just, you know, they were here bickering about this upper level issue. It was honor, but it was just this presenting individual issue and they were bickering about it. Deeply, what they really needed was reconciliation between them because there's generations of sin dating back even to Israel, the man and his 12 sons, which became the tribes of Judah. There was favoritism, there was bitterness, there was jealousy, there was selling off Joseph to slavery. There was brokenness in that family that manifests itself and was never really dealt with. That family never really reconciled. The closest thing was the scene before Joseph in Egypt. But then we see soon after that, the tribes start warring, jockeying for position. Different tribes get different blessings. They needed reconciliation. All they were doing here in 2 Samuel 19 was just engaging with petty disagreements. And with the examples I gave, we need true reconciliation um, in just about all those things. When I think about the conversation about abortion, think about the conversation about racial reconciliation, about gun violence, about homosexuality, gay marriage. There's real reconciliation that needs to happen. People aren't listening to each other, brothers and sisters, because We've got one side entrenched over here, throwing accusations, one side entrenched over here, and we're looking past each other. We need true reconciliation. People won't listen to each other until we engage with the people involved. And as Christians, we don't get to discount people. We don't have the luxury of discounting people. Some people do discount other people. We can't do that. We can't judge people to hell based on their wrong beliefs, even if they're evil and wicked. 
we're called to engage thoughtfully with the ministry of reconciliation. But man, when we start engaging with this, especially with people who are very different from us, we come up against the reality that there are true injustices that need to be dealt with. With Israel and Judah, there were real infractions in this particular argument with each other that, you couldn't, that couldn't be ignored. Israel was dishonored. Judah was dishonored. The more we seek to engage with wrongdoers, with people on the other side, the more we realize that we can't do it. Because the thing is, we, we, when we find injustices, we simply cannot let go of these injustices that we see because they're often bad ones. We cannot fathom a world in which those injustices go unaddressed. Um, I don't recommend that you read online comment streams. Um, Most of you probably do. I recommend that you stop. I recommend that to myself too. Um, But there's a level of hysteria in the world of online comment streams, um, like the, you know, around the topics, like the ones I've mentioned. Um, And part of me is shocked at how worked up some people get about these things. The other part of me really understands, right? I get it. The more you dig into injustice and try to learn about it, deal with it, the more you uncover and you realize it's impossibility. It's like if you have a hangnail, forgive the illustration, but if you have a hangnail that you really wanna just yank out, uh, but then you pull it and make it a bigger deal and a bigger deal as you pull it. The deeper the wound gets, the harder it is to ignore. Injustice is like that. Often when you look into someone who's performed an injustice, the, digger, the deeper you dig, the worse it gets. Well, I know that about myself. You probably know that about yourself. The deeper you dig, the worse things get. The truth is we cannot deal with injustice, with sin, with wrongdoing, because we can't just ignore them. And we as human beings simply aren't equipped to deal with it. The reason we flail around when we see injustice, trying to make things better, trying to pursue justice, but we end up most often making things worse. The reason we flail around when we're accused and we try to self-defend, self-justify, because we can't stand to be, you know, in the presence of our sin, the reason we flail around is because we really can't deal with it. (laughs) We're not equipped. And the sin, and, and sin that is not dealt with, as we see here, as we see in the rest of human history, sin that is undealt with has led in one direction, division, despair, and death. But here's the thing. There's a reason we have such a hard time with injustice. Right? There's a reason we have such a hard time with being wronged by others, with coming to terms with our own sin, especially when we're accused. There's a reason that we would rather divide, separating others from us rather than going on living in the presence of their sin. The reason is because we were made in the image of a God who has told us that he feels very much the same way about injustice and sin. God is a God of justice. He hates injustice. God is a God who is perfectly holy. He hates sin. He cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. But God is also a God of love. He's a God of mercy, a God of steadfast faithfulness to his covenant with humanity, which is a covenant of redemption and restoration. You see, God knew that we could not deal with the injustice that we ourselves bring into the world. I've talked a lot this morning about horizontal injustice, the sin uh, and injustice that is committed against other people. That alone is impossible for us to deal with ourselves. We, we engage and we usually tend to make a bigger mess of it uh, than there was beforehand. But the most grave offense in any of these situations, in any injustice is the dishonor that it brings upon God. The most grave offense in any sin, is the sin, the offense against God in heaven. David knew this. David, after he went in uh, to Bathsheba, after he had her husband killed, he wrote Psalm 51 after that crime. And he says this, he says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Then what does he say? Against you, you only, Lord, have I sinned. 
and done what is evil in your sight. Therefore, you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God knew that we were totally incapable of dealing with horizontal injustice and hostility. He knew that we were totally incapable of dealing with vertical injustice and hostility. His plan all along, therefore, was to send his son, Jesus Christ, to take away the sins of the world, to crucify them on the cross. Every sin, every injustice ever committed and that ever will be committed demands a price to be paid. No one can go unpunished for a wrong that has been done. Not one wrong, not one injustice can go undealt with. When Jesus took the cross, that's what he did. He dealt with the sins of the world. Everything that divides us from one another, everything that divides us from God has been dealt with once and for all on the cross. We have been brought near to God and we have been brought near to one another. Peace has been made in both respects. Listen to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 13. Ephesians 2 says this, says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, unity and humanity. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He preached peace to those you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Christ in his work, particularly on the cross, as we see in Ephesians 2, Christ killed the hostility between us and each other and between us and God. You who once were far off have been brought near. The dividing walls between people, between us and God have been torn down because of what Christ has done. And this is good news. Why? If injustice were ours to address, right? if injustice were ours to procure, then we would never enter into a single situation in this life with any confidence. Right? If, if it's up to me to reconcile with this person or to exact justice for this person who I care deeply about, if it's up to me to find justice, then I might fail. And so I have to go in with fear, you know, trying to, grip, trying to do whatever I can, swing all the punches that I can to try to get justice. In fact, if I look at my track record, I'm pretty sure that the odds are good that in any situation like this, I will fail because I will not be able to achieve justice. But since... Since injustice is not ours to address in an ultimate sense, since, inju- since justice is not in our hands or ours to procure, then we can enter into every situation we come across with confidence, knowing that justice has been served, the price has been paid, both for myself and for the other person, even in the face of the most wretched and depraved of injustices. I can be confident that justice will be attained because justice has already been procured by Christ on his cross. Should we pursue justice? Absolutely. But we pursue justice in a way that's fundamentally different than the world. Right? Here's, in a nutshell, here's the difference. You do not need to ensure that someone pays the price for their injustice. We're certainly called to be agents of justice, looking out for the disadvantaged being taken advantage of seeking the cause of the poor and the oppressed, seeking to bring an end to unjust systems and structures. When we engage, however, with someone who has wronged us or someone else, we are invited to engage with that person out of love, pursuing them for the sake of their own souls, for their own growth, without worrying that they'll get away scot-free if we don't make them pay some price for the injustice that's been committed. Right, it's, it's not wrong for us to wish 
that the wickedness of the world is punished. It's not wrong for us to pray that the justice, that, that justice be served in any situation. In fact, those are good things. Those are good things to wish for and to pray for. Wickedness must be punished. Justice must be served. They both will be, just not by you. For some, lamentably, this, this justice will be poured on their own heads on the coming day of judgment. But for others who place their faith in Christ, those injustices have already been dealt with. Justified are we who have placed our faith in Christ and his work for us on the cross. No sin, no injustice, no matter how terrible, has gone unpunished or will go unpunished. Our interventions with sin might need to be confrontational in nature sometimes, but it should never be vindictive or vengeful. Here's what the gospel says. You don't need vindication because you have been vindicated in Christ. You do not need to exact revenge because as the Lord says, vengeance is mine. Christ bore your sins on the tree. Yes, and he also bore this person's sins who slighted you, who sinned against you. Also, you don't need to justify yourself even when you're in the right. If you're falsely accused, then that is an injustice that has been dealt with. If you are rightly accused, then your injustice has also already been dealt with. You repent with confident faith and watch as God has mercy. Now, it might seem like I took a left turn from where it seemed like I was going. We were talking about these arguments between Israel and Judah and how sin causes division. Then I started talking a lot about injustice. Here I am talking about how God is a God of justice. Therefore, you don't need to exact revenge. You're already justified. You don't need to justify yourselves. So on. So what does this have to do with unity and division? That's where I, start, that's where I, I started. That's what, that's what I think the Lord is having us talk about. What does this have to do with unity and division? I think it has everything to do with unity and division because the things that we divide over are questions of justice. Right? They're questions of moral right and moral wrong. Think about it, racial reconciliation, abortion, gun control, homosexuality, sexual identity, immigrants and refugees. These are issues, these are questions of justice that involve moral rights and moral wrongs. What's the problem though? So often we enter into these conversations about these things as though we are crusaders who are going to ride in with ferocious power and bring swift judgment on, in, on injustice and untruth in our society. So often that is our self-characterization. Sure, we are called to seek to correct injustice. Isaiah 1, 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And that's a clear call not to just ignore injustice, but... Later on in Isaiah, even, we see a couple of things that talk about God's ultimate plan for injustice. Isaiah chapter 30, the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Isaiah 51, my righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me and for my arm, they wait. They don't lift up their own, they wait for mine. Sometimes we use 1 Peter 3.15 to justify our approach to these things. If you're familiar with it, it says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Only do so with gentleness and respect. So we latch onto those words right in the middle. Always be prepared to make a defense. Always be prepared to make a defense. And too often forget the part that says that we should wait to be asked and that we should do so with gentleness and respect. We take that verse, we take that part of that verse and justify it as going to every comment board that we can find and proving everyone wrong going to every one of our friends who is wrong and saying, hey, I just, need to, I just need to tell you the truth, brother. Your brother needs to hear the truth. He needs to hear it with gentleness and respect and love. 
There's all kinds of verses in the Bible that pull us back when we're tempted to do this. Proverbs 20, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. First Peter 3, verse nine, just before that, First Peter three fifteen says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Luke 6, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. One that you're probably familiar with, Matthew 5. You've heard it, it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not, this is Jesus speaking, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You've probably heard that verse a bunch of times. You've probably thought a lot about what that verse doesn't mean. Um, We talk a lot about what that verse doesn't mean. It doesn't mean just lay down and do nothing in the face of injustice. I agree with that, that's true. It doesn't mean that. But it also does mean something. Jesus said, um, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. There's a picture of submission, of humility, of silence that there is actually a place for in the Christian life. Ferocity, ferocity, ferociousness is not what we're called to with one another in the case of wrongdoing. Engaging fiercely with people is not something that should be a characteristic of the people of God. Um, There's a lot here. Let me close this way. As I was preparing to preach this week, um, the Lord really had me thinking about this little passage in in Philippians. You might be familiar with it. Um, Philippians chapter two. If I can find Philippians in my Bible. There it is. Oh, I had my little ribbon in it. All right, Philippians chapter two. Uh, Paul is writing to Christians. He's explaining what it means that Christ has done all these great things for them. He's basically writing what it means to be a Christian. What is the Christian life supposed to look like? This is what Paul's talking about. And he says this, Philippians two, starting in verse two. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. But the apostle Paul speaks here in no unclear terms. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. In humility, count others as more valuable than yourself. Live a life of humility. This is what Paul is calling us to. And how are we to do it? He goes on, verse five. He says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind, this, this humble mind, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to talk about what Jesus did. He humbled himself. He was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's a beautiful, the Christ hymn, the Philippians 2. Beautiful passage. But the verse that stuck in my mind in Philippians chapter 2 as I was in this text this week was, of course, verse 5. It said, have, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The incredible thing that Paul says is that this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, Pursue this mind. He said, this mind is yours. So have it. And that's incredible. There's a lot that could be said, but that's not actually the part of the verse that stuck out to me. The two words that stuck out to me are among yourselves. The apostle Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul presupposes the Christian community is where this gets lived out where this mind actually reaches fruition in the lives of Christians, among yourselves. You see, there's no category in the Bible for a Christian life lived in isolation. 
right, outside the context of living in community with a local church. From the very earliest days of the church, we see that living in community as the church is an integral part of what it means to be a Christian. You might remember Acts chapter two. What happens right at the beginning of Acts chapter two? The Holy Spirit falls on the church. They're gathered there, they're waiting, and the Holy Spirit falls. All kinds of crazy things happen. That's arguably the time when the church becomes the church, the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right after that, Peter preaches a sermon to explain what has happened. Right after preacher's sermon, Peter preaches and a bunch of people come to faith, what happens? We come to a passage in Philippians 2, the end of the chapter, which says, you might've heard of it, they devoted themselves as a result of this to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had everything in common. They were selling their possessions as any had need, distributing to the needy in their midst. This is what it meant to be the church, right? To be together, to have all things in common with each other. The world lived one way and the church lived another way. The early church was referred to by, by non-Christian historians as the way. These people refer to themselves as the way, the way, walking in the way of Christ. In a world marked by divisions and discord, the church was marked by unity and love. This is what Paul had in mind when he said, among yourselves, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the people of God living life together, growing into the likeness of Christ. And as Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, living out the mind of humility, which is ours in Christ. You know, this is, this is what Paul is talking about. Where is it that you're regularly re reminded to give up your preferences for the sake of others in the context of the church? Where is it where there's a lot of needy people who have needs that you probably don't want to meet in your flesh, but that you're called to meet? by God in the context of the church community, right? You know, outside of the fact that the Bible calls us to this, think about it. You have lots of people who have needs and you also have lots of people, Lord willing, who will spur you on to greater and greater measures of humility and love in Christ. And this is hard. Uh, this involves the, the Christian life, this living out this life together involves laying down your life. And that's why so often we don't dig into community like we should because our flesh doesn't want this. We don't want to lay down our life for our brothers. But it is crucial because not only is the community of the local church God's plan for your growth in humility, but the community of the local church is God's plan for reaching the world. Right? This is essential, a central reality of what it means that God is reaching out to the world through the church. Right? John 17, you're probably, you might be familiar with the passage. Jesus prays for the church and he says, oh, Father, would you be in me and I in them that they might be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Through the unity, the single-mindedness of, of the church, the community of faith, the people of God organized in the local church, local churches scattered across the world. These, this is how people will see God's love for the world and for them. It's incredible among yourselves. It's so simple. It's so crucial. We're called to having the mind of Christ alongside one another. So what I would ask you is this as we go. Um, as I close, what is your pattern of interacting with people who wrong you? What is your pattern of interacting with people who accuse you of things? What is your pattern of behavior with respect to these really complex, nuanced conversations like the ones that I brought up this morning? What is your pattern? Is it marked by ferocity? Is it marked by turning a blind eye, saying, I've done no wrong? Is it marked by thoughtful love and engagement with each other? As we go, 
I would invite you to fix your mind, or excuse me, your mind as well, but fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ because the mind of Christ, you know, when Christ, the, the most beautiful picture of this kind of life, what does it take to interact with people who accuse you? Look at Christ. What happened when he was accused? There's that song that we sing, Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. There's a line in there that says, silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned. Jesus had, he was in the right <laughs> and we were in the wrong and he stood silent, submitting to the suffering that he endured for the joy that was set before him. Might we too submit to things that come across our way because we will suffer. It's true, you will suffer because of your own wrongs, because of the wrongs of others. You're not supposed to lay down and do absolutely nothing about it. But Christ has given you a picture of submission, a beautiful, humble submission that he invites us into. And this is impossible without his help. But he will do it. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so might we as a church be a church that is growing ever more humble, ever more loving as time passes, as we await Christ's return. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text, this passage about um, just this petty disagreement between Israel and Judah. Thank you for speaking to us through your Holy Spirit as your sheep who hear your voice. Lord, I pray that if there's anything that I said that was unhelpful, that you would just graciously erase that from everyone's memory, that you would weave your truth from your word into our hearts by the power of your spirit. Pray that you would fix our eyes on you, our humble savior, and, and help us, Lord, to live lives of humility so that we can truly be the church that the world needs right now. Let us not be characterized by lazy entrenchment in, in, in ideologies that have no bearing on real life right now. Let us be characterized by earnest, loving, humble, trust and faith in you and engagement with the world around us for your sake, for your glory, and for the good of our neighbor. Be glorified in this place, in this church, as we grow in this way together. In Jesus' name, amen.